This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sportful, home of the Fiandra Collection. That's right. The Fiandra is a no-nonsense range that was developed on the cobbled bergs of Flanders, where the variable weather can be as challenging as the road you're riding on. Using valuable input from Sportful's pro riders, the likes of Peter Sagan and Paolo Bettany included, the Fiandra collection mixes weatherproof technology with a performance fit for tough clothing that you can actually race in. With everything from warmers to jackets, bib tights to gilets, the Fiandra range will have you covered from head to toe, leaving you with no excuse not to ride. Prices starting from £45, the Fiandra range is available at all Sportful stockists. For more information on the Sportful Fiandra range, click the link in the episode description below. Hello and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast brought to you in association with Sportful. I'm your host, Joe Robinson. Joining me is James Spender. Hola, Joel. Hello, and it's the Christmas special. And to get into the Yuletide spirit, who better to join us than Team Bike Exchange's joker, Chris Yule Jensen. But before we get into that conversation about caramel potatoes and playing drums in a band, we're going to go into some things we're liking and disliking in the world of cycling right now. James, this is technically our Christmas special. Listener, this is going to be our last episode before the new year, so we're going to make it the Christmas special, even though it's a couple of weeks before Christmas. Is it going to be festively themed? Is that why you're wearing your festive glasses? It's why I'm wearing my festive glasses. It's why I'm drinking mulled wine. In the middle of the day. In the middle of the day, and it's why I'm avoiding mince pies, because the thing I don't like, James, and I'm going to get in there, is that mince pies don't contain mince meat they contain a weird fruity mixture that i don't enjoy really i didn't i didn't used to enjoy the mince pie until your you got your adult taste buds i got my adult taste buds you get them you know so you, first of all you lose your your baby teeth and then you get your adult teeth and after a while somewhere in your mid 20s you lose your baby taste buds and you get your adult taste buds and suddenly things like very 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 strange things that's why old people like fruitcake yeah they like bitter don't they they do they don't like and i think it's around the time you stop getting spots you develop a liking for mince pies and um pickle some say some say that mince pies are a cure for the acne really yeah interesting i'm not going to you not going to try that because i think mince pies are disgusting um, I and I'm also just incredibly disappointed that there's not actual mints in them. Slight tangent for you, James. I have a meat-related anecdote that I think you might enjoy. Okay. When I was a kid, my parents took me and my grandparents to a pub for lunch. And I was a greedy child. I was a greedy child, James. And on the menu, I saw pork, sausages, chips, which I ordered. And then it came out. And I started to complain and I was upset and I was annoyed because I didn't understand why there wasn't pork, sausages and chips on my plate. Just pork, sausages and chips. Yeah. 
So I'd read the me- okay, no, okay cool. <laughs> no, I was, deli- the I was being mean. I'd read Joe. the menu. I was thinking, being mean. I've- I was deliberately leaving you hanging there. This is like this is the Joe Robinson version of each shoots and leaves. I, I was ex- fully expecting to get some pork chops, sausages, and chips on my plate. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Here's something else I'm not liking, James, and it's ugly helmets. Okay, for the for the for the tape, I'm showing James an ugly helmet. I'm going to name the ugly helmet. So. First out, shout out to this brand because they're the only helmet brand that actually fits my head. They're the only helmet brand that goes to 63 centimetres and actually does go to 63 centimetres. It's Cask, big time fan of their products. The Vallegro, my helmet of choice. The Protone, one of the best looking helmets in the Peloton. But the new Wasabi, which is their like, not as aero as their aero helmet, but not as ventilated as their ventilated, ventilated aero helmet. It just looks terrible. When, when you're of the community of bigger heads like myself, I'm in the top 5% of head sizes in the world. That's right, top 5%. Helmets rarely look good on you. They re- rarely look clean and they can often look quite mushroom-esque quite easily. Um, so you have to be careful with the helmet of choice, the helmets you go for. But this one in particular exacerbates the size of my head. Um, I thought maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just the fact that I have a massive head that it looks so bad. But I've seen one of our competitors reviewed the Wasabi recently. Um, and it was reviewed by Mr. James Huang of Cycling Tips. I've met Mr. James Huang. He does not have a massive head. He has quite a small head. Well, I'd say, you know, average human-sized head, maybe below average. And again, it looks terrible on him. Um, which leads me to the conclusion that it looks terrible on everyone. Well, that's that's um, that's terribly... Uh condemning of the poor little cask other other casks you do like as you point out but i just think it's not really castful i think that um helmets got good at i don't know around about 2014 2015 they finally came good and then aero came along and the duo air attack came along and they suddenly started looking like james dean and rollerball all over again which was sort of cool for a while uh but then the novelty wore off and then people also realized that you don't need an extra three watts but you do kind of want to wear a helmet that doesn't make you look too daft and then helmets kind of got good again and now they're going they're going the wrong way for me a priority is not being laughed at by my other half as i leave the door not them extra free watts and you know what the protone is an excellent looking helmet which cask produce brilliant looking semi-aero helmet really did some fine work there but the wasabi is just missing the mark, you know? Yeah, I do know. Well, you know, such is life. There we go. Um, when I was little, we used to have to wear helmets. My parents made us wear helmets, as, you know, all good parents sh- should do. I used to ride down the road and take mine off and hide it in a bush, which worked fantastically. Because uh, I just used to, because when you're a kid, you just, you worry you worry about looking cool in a way that when you're an adult. Were your other mates helmetless? They were helmetless, yeah. Looking back on it, it's probably because their parents didn't love them. But at the time, I just assumed it was because they were cool and my parents deliberately wanted to upstage me. So I used to hide my helmet in a bush. Um, but then one day, uh, one of my parents' friends told, saw me and then told my told my parents. Wow. And I came home. They, exactly. Absolute snitch. Came home. My parents were waiting for me. And they were like, James. And I was like, what's that? My mum went, you've been seen. <laughs> you, but there could have been a long list of things that you'd been seen doing that day. So I know, well, that's of, the thing. Little panic, did they yeah. know. When I have a kid, every time it comes back, I'm going to be like, 
don't know, I'm not going to call my kid David, but for the sake of David, you've been seen. Yeah, seen you. Seen you, David. Seen you. I saw you. What are you doing? What are you doing, David? You want to you fess up? Do you want to fess up now? Before I tell you and embarrass you in front of your mother? That's when they That's when they fess up to something much more mel- Yeah, melodious. Mm, right, that'd be so, yeah, maybe you don't want to know. Uh, anyway, moving swiftly on, um, give me something that you like, because frankly, you've just been making me really sad for your head. That's all right. No worries. Something I am liking. Um, I, I'm i a firm believer that Castelli produced one of the best winter garments out there. It's the Perfetto jacket, which is like, it's kind of like a, a dumbed down, not dumbed down, but like a pared down version of the Gabba, which is like their almost wetsuit, heavy duty rain jacket. And the Perfetto is like a lighter version of that that you can wear throughout most of winter with like good base layers and maybe a gilet over the top. There's nothing new with it. Like they do, they've collaborated with Gore-Tex to make it like windproof and uh, just basically a very good thing to wear if it's raining or it's slightly windy. But they've just brought out a new range with some pretty out there designs. So they've gone for like a light blue and sort of navy blue tartan look for all those Scots out there. Pete Muir, our editor, he might want to pick one up. Other famous Scottish cyclist, Dave Miller, he might want to get in on the act. Um, But the one I'm particularly liking is the Argyle and Puppy Tooth combination, which is sort of a a black, sort of a white and navy puppy tooth with a sort of a blue and red Argyle printed over the top of it, which sounds bad, but I quite like. Well, um, I've I've got a lot of time for Castelli. I've got a lot of time for the Perfetto. I've absolutely no time for these designs. Um, It's a little bit like this. It's like Pringle. Um, oh, it's like mate, your Pringle, sense of it's style like Pringle, went out with the arc, son. It's like Pringle, mate. My sense of style was so stylish that I wasn't wearing a helmet when I was younger because I realised that not wearing a helmet was so cool. Honestly, it's like they, it's like Pringles. Pringle fired somebody and then they went and got a job at Castelli and in their golfing department. You'll see this. The you know the next like Masters jacket is going to be made of Gore-Tex Infinium and it's going to be green. But um, anyway, each to their own. Like if you if you. If you like, I tell you what it will do, it will keep you warm. It will keep you warm, and no one wants to steal it from you. So that's two good things for it. James, before you can sort of put water onto the flames of my suggestions anymore, please come at me with your own good and bad. My own good and bad. Well, uh, what I haven't been liking is uh, I've got a bit of a DIY situation with some taps. I bust a little mixer in the middle of my, well, I bust, bust a little uh, cam in the middle of my mixer taps in my bathroom so it's stuck on shower mode which is fine also sort of boring to talk about but it does just annoy me that you just can't get replacement parts and so bless her keely from tap warehouse thank you very much she's going to send me a whole new set but i'm like it's a tiny little part i've ascertained which one it is we've been you know keely and i we've been in dialogue she knows i know they just can't get apart so that's going in the rubbish bin which is a real shame but i did like seeing this week that uh, there's the right to repair lobby, which is basically a bunch of people being like, we should be able to repair stuff more freely instead of throwing it in the bin, which is fantastic. And they've kind of finally won over Apple, and Apple are going to actually release repair kits for their iPhones like 12, 13, and onwards. And that's not to say that you or I will be replacing our cracked screens anytime soon. I'd have to actually get myself an iPhone 12 and above before that could actually happen. But it does mean that they are admitting that our consumption of electronics is just unsustainable and we should be able to fix more stuff. So that's nice, isn't it? 
that's quite good though. What you liking though, James? Uh, another little DIY thing, mate. And also on the on the you know on the reduce, reuse, recycle, and upscale and repair. Uh, bought a table off eBay, stripped it back, got some Osmo top oil. Anyone's used that. A lot of listeners will have used that. It's the gold standard in oiling your work surfaces, your high traffic areas, with something that doesn't end up having a horrible lacquery look to it. And got some of that. And Mr. Miyagi style, wax on, wax off it for an hour of an afternoon. And it's just incredibly, incredibly rewarding just to see the grain slowly coming through and changing colour and all your hard work paying off and taking something that once looked very old and it looked like it was going the way of my taps and giving it a fresh lease of life. And now I've also got a dining table so I can stop eating quite literally off the floor. So that's all been great. What are we talking? Two, four, six... Well, Cheetah. we're talking. I'm saying, I'm saying, my partner Lindsay's like, nah, it's uh, she's she's reckoning it's like a four, but I'm like, nah, it's, it's a six. You get a six around it, and then it's got leaf, a leaf, rectangular. Uh, it's rectangular. It's got a leaf. It extends, so you can get, you know, I would say eight. Liz would say six. I'm not entirely sure. We'll see. But at the moment, um, it's a wonderful place to put things. What are we talking about? Like? Tables become like three fifty by one fifty. I uh, know we're talking. Uh, we're talking one five two unextended by uh, eighty. No, nine ninety two. Oh, that's a four. Maybe. That's a four. I don't know. You be the judge, mate. Come around for dinner. But anyway, that's really lovely. Um, and I've also just um, taken uh, delivery of a new bike, which is super sick. Oh, it's yeah. a spoon custom. Nice. It's um, it's the got VAR, this, it's got isn't it? The VAR. Yeah. The video the assistant video referee. Assistant referee. Yeah. yeah. Precisely. Yeah. Um, but it's got this amazing finish on it. It's kind of like soft touch paint, which feels a little bit like a velour tracksuit, which I'm quite into. Really holds the dust quite terribly, and I'm sure I'm going to scratch it, and it's going to be really noticeable. But I've just ridden it home for the first time, and it is so smooth and so nice. And as much as I'm going to say that's an incredible bike, and I'm loving riding it, it just reminds me of just getting like a just. We spend so much time now on all kinds of bikes that aren't proper true blue um, race bikes. And then you get on a bike that's like, no, this is a race bike. And when they're good, they're so good. It's just so smooth. It's incredibly comfortable as well. I've got to say, you'll hate it, but it's got 29 mil tires on it. Big shout out to race bike. I mean, I'll say true blue race bike. That would make a lot of people shudder the idea you've got anything bigger than 25. But it's just so smooth and it feels all the faster for it. And it looks incredible and I can't wait to, uh, to ride it more. But the, I know it's going to be jostling for position because I've also got some kitchen countertops that I'm going to be top oiling this weekend. So I'm not sure which I'm going to enjoy more. Hey, Terzano. Huh? You, have you got a Terzano top or? I've not. No, I wouldn't go to Terzano. I'm, 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 a, I'm, a, I'm a hardwoods kind of person. Oh, know? a hardwood, hardwood top? Yeah, yeah. This is, I've got more top oil for another hard, for a, well, it's not hardwood, it's beach. Beach is sort of like pushing towards the hardwoods. It's not as soft as pine, but it's not going to have a winner fight against uh oak against an oak exactly um but it's going to look great when i finish with that uh so i've got a fantastic christmas lined up and i'm sure any listener is thinking and i've got a fantastic new year lined up hearing more about my tales of diy in the future so i do apologize you did ask me joe and now i've told you that's good i look forward to hearing more of your tales diy tales in the new year uh before we do that though i thought we should go into our christmas themed podcast with a man whose name literally means christmas in danish which is a coincidence because he is from denmark also slightly from ireland but anyway here's chris Jul jensen 
I think the best place to start off is like one of the most contentious issues I always see with pros, which is, do you ride on Christmas Day? No. And what do you what about what do you think of riders who do ride on Christmas Day? Well, I have to, I did laugh when I wasn't in my my former teammate and one of my good friends in the peloton, Matteo Trentin. I think he uh, he posted something last year, something around Christmas, when everyone who was riding their bike on the twenty fourth are losers. <laughs> I think that that's a, a bit bit of an unfair judgment to make because it is it is our job at the end of the day, but. I, my my uh, my opinion, the way I go about things during Christmas is is that uh, I try to do as much training before and after so that that one day is uh, is left alone. So I actually, yeah. When we start planning my my off season training block with when I do that with my my coach Mark Quad, then the last couple of years I've, we've just I've just said from the get go, listen, these these couple of days. Uh, I think it's typically like from the 23rd to the 26th. Just don't don't give me anything to do because I've spent some years where I've been doing intervals out in the shed in my parents' house or down my my parents-in-law's basement. You know, trying to yeah. trying to get the work done and make sure that my training peaks doesn't have a red mark on it. And then it's <laughs> like, ah, oh, now that I've become a dad, also three years ago, my daughter's three now. It's just now, nah, you know, I. Those those days are so hectic to begin with that it's like doing a mini stage race anyway. So, you know, <laughs> I think there's, there's no there's no need to add more fuel onto that. What can sometimes be a, a stressful, festive period, enjoy as as enjoyable as it is. There's no need to be doing a VO two intervals and six hour rides. Why? Why else everyone's having a Bailey's and? Uh... I'm not gonna lie. I have before been you know one of those riders, especially. Oh, I can't. I can't. I'm I'm doing a. I'm doing a big ride tomorrow, you know. I, I can't have a beer, and then but now I've I've gone to a point it's like if if you're not a, if you're not able to be a professional before and after, then and you need there's some there's a reason to you have to train those days, and then maybe it's because you've you've skipped a few corners. So once the once the well deserved off days are over, so by the sounds of it, you're not riding on Boxing Day, but you're back to training on the say the twenty seventh. How do you do you feel like the rest of us do, which is, you know, slow and heavy and kind of awful? Or are you in a situation where you just got incredible bounce back ability? And how do you kind of get yourself back onto your um, more kind of like monkish training path? What's your first ride post Christmas look like? Typically, uh, post Christmas or even post uh, off season breaks, I, I just, you know, I always want to hit the ground running. So I just straight off the bat, I, I would have a. A, a proper training day intervals either on the road or on on the tax in the basement um in, on the swift or whatever what i use um when i train indoors to be honest i actually living in denmark as well i i like and i've i've, I've enjoyed that the last couple of years sort of the feeling of having it having time off but still looking after myself whilst i'm off so i don't need to spend mm. and in my opinion waste time trying to find some some decent form that I can then use to actually do some proper work with. So I, I, I just, I like to start straight off um, with a hard day. Um, oh. And that's, that's usually how I go about things. Also, you know, when the, when, for example, three weeks ago, when I started my, my, my winter training block, you know, mm. I, I, t- I took four weeks off where I, just, I was completely off the bike, but, where I ran, which has become more and more popular, I, could, I get the impression within the pro peloton to actually run 
Mm. Um, but I've done that last couple of years, good bit also throughout the season because it's a good way of keeping the weight down, giving the legs and the muscles, you know, a good bit of stress, but without sort of stressing the cardiovascular system. You know, my, my heart rates, I run so slow, so my heart rate doesn't really go anywhere. But I can still, you know, I'm, after 45 minutes running, I'm completely buckled. So that means that my, my core fitness is always relatively high. And then uh, that means that the transition from no bike to bike is, is pretty easy. And then I just, uh, I go from riding, not riding to, you know, following a, a pretty serious training block from day one. So you're not doing any three-hour marathons like your old teammate, Adam Yates? Or was it sub-three hours? I don't know what's more amazing, his results on the on the bike or that marathon, because to me, I mean, I love running because it's so simple and it's a good way of, mm. you know, getting a bit of fresh air, cl- clearing the head and just a uh, feeling that you're, you know, you're still looking after the body. But no way. I, I mean, one hour, that's that's my limit. And then, you know, as opposed to cycling where you can actually feel you get better and better. Mm. Running, I just, no matter how much time I spend running, I never get better. <laughs> it's just a question of not getting worse not getting injured what would be what's your kind of go-to plan for for shifting weight i mean that's one of the questions we get asked a lot um and we ask trait we ask coaches a lot what, what's a pro do to just get rid of weight quickly but also sustainably i guess because you don't want to you know it's got to be safe my go-to is not, not to put on weight so, so that that, <laughs> that sort of makes the the whole the, the whole challenge of losing weight a lot easier um and again i think it comes with being a pro for 10 years, you know, become more, more mature. You feel you have more responsibility. And also, you know, just my, uh, my everyday life here at home, I have a wife, I have a child. It, does, it, it, it wouldn't really be uh, sustainable if I sort of, when the season finished, I just sat at home eating chocolate and, and fish and chips, you know, and sang five beers every night just because I, I was allowed. You know, I, I, you could do that as an amateur, uh, you know, go out, on the pace every weekend and sort of get away with it because it's the off season. But now also the way pro cycling is developed, you can't really afford yourself to, to sort of get too lost during the off season, if you know what I mean? Cause mm. it just, it requires too much time and effort to get back to some sort of level of fitness that can be used to something. And now you see riders just being, being ready from the get go. Um, I think, when uh, when we when Tour Down Under was on, that was a good example. You could see the shift in how professional it was. It had become er, in the early stages of the season, which you know riders turned up in Australia ready to race and ready to to win points. Uh, also from Europe, it wasn't really a holiday anymore. It still is for some, but I mean, in this day and age, it really is a. It's it's few people who actually have a an unserious uh, off season. It reminds me of saying another of your old teammates said Simon Gerrans. He said that at the beginning of his career, you used to turn up at Tour Down Under and there was guys who were barely fitting into their bib shorts. And but now you don't if you don't turn up with fifteen hundred K in the legs to the first January training camp, you're getting spat on day one. Yeah. To me that's it's the it's the it's the best and easiest way to sort of just main, maintain weight and fitness. And I also feel that as a pro bike rider, I like feeling like a pro. 365 days a year um it's my job and i enjoy i i i love that job um and probably the most important part of being a pro bike rider is, is looking after your taking care of your your system your body and you know for some they do it differently and of course for for riders winning grand tours their sacrifice to get there is perhaps 
bigger than mine in terms of what my role is in the pro peloton. But I still feel personally, I just feel like I need to, you know, live like a pro, act like a pro, you know, when I am a pro, I think that helps me quite a lot in terms of training in the off season, especially because there's, you know, I don't really fluctuate that much. I certainly make sure to take my time off the bike. There's, it's not because I overtrain at all. Mm. I really, you know, I, I really enjoy and appreciate my, my recovery periods. Um, but then when I train, I train to train, you know, I don't, I don't go out sightseeing. I don't, I don't waste, I don't feel like I'm, you know, whenever I'm out, I'm, I'm out pushing the pedals. I train alone here in yeah. Copenhagen because I'm always doing intervals or efforts or whatever. So it's, uh, I, I, I like that mental to have that mentality because it keeps me sort of in check and reminds me that this is my job <laughs> and it's, 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 it's a nice way to go about things for me. Has that, has that changed over time though? Um, in, in your, uh, 10 year career since and how would how do you see the youngsters coming through um to the teams that you've been involved in um in the you know the latter kind of um half of your career versus the people that you were coming up with when you first turned pro well i'd say um if i compare my first year as pro to now that professional science has become so much more professional uh especially during this period you know as i as i mentioned earlier we're, everyone's so focused. This is uh, also quite obvious with the younger generation that they're 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 extremely professional for 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 riders at such a young age with such little experience in the pro peloton, and that has a sort of uh, push on effect to the older guys. Certainly for me, because it's sort of a it's a bit of a wake up call reminder that oh, okay, you have to I have to sometimes re- rethink things the the way I do things or and uh, it's just a, a, a general reminder of there's these young this young generation that have stepped up and have just they're just doing so well um and that reminds me that i also have to keep my eye on the ball uh, throughout the year um because i can definitely see personally that i'm a more professional bike rider now during the off season that i was when i began um because there's you know there's a there is room to sort of switch off there still is room to switch off I, I i definitely do a lot of switching off but it's it's still with sort of that feeling that i have you know training is, is pretty serious there's a lot of intervals during the during the winter period uh nutrition weight as we spoke about earlier all those things are there's a lot more attention towards these things during the november december january period and that 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 is different compared to when i when i started so we talk about nutrition there. If there is one day, though, however, it is Christmas Day where we can forget the nutrition. Ironically, the idea of eating 8,000 calories and then being really tired in the afternoon is something that me and James may do once a year, whereas a pro bike rider do it most days, pretty much every day in the Grand Tour when you're having to stuff your face just to get to the end of the stage. But um, what is on Chris Jensen's dinner plate? On Christmas Day, in, in Denmark, it's 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 mainly Christmas Eve, uh, and then the, oh, right, yeah. the twenty sixth is where you have the big family lunches. Um, but Christmas Eve is a is is a is a bit of a a food marathon. <laughs> but uh, I think uh, I, I, that that's just not my family. But I think this sort of whole uh, new Nordic development in in just cuisine in general, you know, right has a again has a has sort of had an influence on the on the Christmas. Uh, Christmas menus, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of like salads, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> which sort of benefits ben, cabbage salads and, and stuff like that, which benefits a bike rider. But there's also a lot of we duck, you know, we don't eat turkey, we eat duck. 
Right. Okay. Um, we docked potatoes. Uh, potatoes, you know, is soaked in like a caramel sauce. It sounds a bit weird. Wow. Um, but then I just uh, typically I I don't really like them anyway, so I just have normal potatoes, and then dock salad, and then it's not really it's not worse than many other meals if you don't you know go overboard. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that, and then again, that's that's again something I've sort of noticed with time becoming older. I, it's not like oh I, I have to eat because I can eat, so I just got to eat as much as I possibly can. You know, I think mm. as you get older, you also know how to appreciate a meal without having to fuck completely destroy yourself. <laughs> um, so it's not a, it's, it's not, you know, sometimes you read stupid articles like, oh, I have to dance around the Christmas tree like 15,000 times to burn off half your meal. It's like, oh, jeez. <laughs> but, but I think uh, I sort of approach it like any other meal. Maybe I probably cut back on the calories the days before and the morning and the afternoon of, of Christmas Eve. But um, right. other than that, I sort of, I just make sure to enjoy it, you know, and uh, eat until I, I'm, I'm not hungry anymore. And were you, were you accompanying that with, uh, are you happy to have a, a few drinks on Christmas Day as well? Yeah, 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 yeah. Bit of wine, <laughs> bit of wine, sh- uh, snaps during the lunches, Danish snaps. Uh, yeah, which is pretty strong. It's like grappa. Um, right. So I, 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 I certainly I have a bit to drink, but... Uh, you know, I, I, I've never gotten maggot during any Christmas launches. That'd be a bit weird. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I keep it at a, a pretty reasonable level. And then um, then I'm good to go a few days after, uh, which is nice. And then it's then it's New Year's Eve, which is usually another big one. But um, again, now that I haven't become a dad. I sort of I feel like I'm, even though I'm only 32, it's like, oh, okay, I can't really, hangovers, they don't really mix that well with, <laughs> young kids and training and lack of I have a, there's a plenty of lack sleepless nights to begin with when you have small kids so i sort of uh that that helps me that helps keep me a little bit in check as well during the off uh, the 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 christmas festive days and do you have uh have you kind of imported any traditions um from ireland because that's that's the thing you're living in copenhagen and you're racing as a danish national um but you're you're born in born in the Wicklow Mountains. We always spent Christmas in Denmark, uh, despite me growing up and living in Ireland for sixteen years. Mm. Um, I think we we spent Christmas once in Ireland, and we 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 then uh, celebrated Christmas on the twenty fourth and had duck. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I've actually I don't, I've never had you know a Christmas turkey, um, and oh. I've never had a big uh, sort of typical Irish uh, Christmas lunch. Um, it's all been pretty Danish the 32 years I, I've I've spent Christmas, um, so it's a bit of a shame actually because I, I actually do like the idea of, of celebrating Christmas in the morning on the 25th. But there is something I I also do love the the 24th Christmas Eve. It's that's quite a it's it's a nice way to celebrate Christmas. And considering we we spent Christmas every year in Denmark. Uh, except for one and yeah it's it's there's not much of an irish influence in 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 the christmas uh, celebrations no but speaking speaking of influences and i know this must i don't know if this sounds kind of strange us keeping on talking asking you about um you know kind of drinking and partying and stuff but it seems like such a delineation between uh, any kind of amateur cyclist and a professional that abstinence so there is this fascination of how you know how do pros just kind of unwind um and within that, being as though you raced uh, with Saxo, were there really mad staff parties when Tinkoff was involved? Yes and no. I mean, <laughs> bike riders are good at uh, 
you know, creating a party. It's because we're, like you said, we're, we're, we, we sacrifice so much. We spend so much time on the bike, you know, a lot of hours training, a lot of hours away that when we then sort of can release a bit of, bit of tension uh, out of the system, then, you know, it's, it's usually a bit of a, a bit of a night out. But um, no, I, I think uh, Tinkoff, uh, he was probably more impressed by some of our stains um, when he arrived. Uh-huh. Oh, cool. This, this ain't, these are fun lads. Um, <laughs> I do remember when uh, when we won the Giro, when Alberto won the Giro, which I was a part of in 2015, and, and, and Oleg was there. That was a lot of fun, uh, which I, <laughs> I, I, I really enjoyed Oleg's presence when he was when he was there in the team. He was always, for, to me, he was always a bear of laughs. Um, yeah. But he, again, yeah. He was also a very serious person um, when it when it came to things. So it's, it's you know so, sometimes I think people sort of turn up to a, a party or a restaurant with group bikers. Like, oh, it's going to kick off now, and then they're like, oh, geez, these guys are pretty pretty serious people. Because I think for the professional bike riders, at the end of the day, there's always that sort of in the back of your mind. Ah, you know, I'm professional. I have to train mm. and I have to perform. And if I don't perform when I get to a race, well, then it all just sort of ends on my shoulders. And uh, the riders left there sort of they're left behind really both on the road and afterward one of my best one of my favorite tinkoff stories was adam blythe told us was um he took the team out for dinner and was over dinner telling everyone including peter sagan who was at dinner that he's paying him too much but then also proceeded to order twenty thousand pounds bottles of wine in (laughs) in the same breath (laughs) i think i was uh, because i wasn't being paid much back then and i never really you know i never got that uh sort of slack from him so he always consumed me as a, 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 a good, strong, loyal workhorse yeah. uh, with an Irish-Danish pedigree that, that uh, I think he, he took a shine to. So that I, I, was, I was always uh, I was lucky to avoid those, uh, th- those remarks, uh, <laughs> which, was, which, was, which was nice, I suppose. Did you, have you ever got um, – I've always wondered, we, me and James, as part of – we work for Cyclist Magazine, we, at Christmas time, get sent gifts – by some brands so we get a hand signed card from shimano for example and we get a panatone from fsa most years um do you get gifts from any of your sponsors or even from your team do you get like a hamper turn up uh i i haven't received any, uh, any gifts that i put my stocking christmas stocking uh, <laughs> which uh I, I i i haven't taken it personally um <laughs> They probably think that we're, we're sports so rotten anyway throughout the course of a, of a season. So it's like, wow, well, no need to send them any gifts because come 1st January, they're going to receive so much clothing, bikes, bags, computers, yeah. everything you everything you dreamt of and more when you're an amateur, we get. So uh, I think uh, if, they, if, if they sent us a goodie bag, they'd be like, wow, well, we'll just, okay, I'll just get that next, next month anyway at training camp. So we'd probably take it for granted. And do you get um, come the end of the year? Do you does all the kit get handed? I mean, I'm assuming you know sponsors probably ain't going to be asking you for bib shorts back, but things like um, you know high ticket items, bikes, wheels, unused tubs, um, stuff like that. Does that all go back, or is that all part of the kind of parcel? The big stuff, uh, yeah. like, you, like you mentioned, bikes are are all uh, brought back um, mm. and then uh, swapped. So it's you know it's again. So it's a bit it's a bit funny sometimes. But if I'm in a bike shop and I have to buy some tires uh, or whatever, even though it's uh, I buy the same tire brand that that we're sponsored by, but if I'm just you know in a situation where I have to buy a chain or a tire or yeah. whatever, or I hear friends 
buying equipment and I'm always sort of blown away because I'm like, geez, I haven't paid for anything for so long because obviously we're, we, we get everything. Um, so it's, you know, it's, we're really in a privileged place as pros because then we also have all the clothing and the clothing we keep. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of friends and family that are kitted out and, you know, seen bike exchange clothing throughout the years. And then I also, <laughs> yeah. you know, I am a bit of a hoarder when it comes to, to old bike clothes. I don't, I haven't actually kept or bought, you know, you can, you can always ask to buy a bike after a season, but I actually haven't, because we've, we've, we haven't really, we've lived in relatively small apartments up until now. There hasn't really been space to, to buy it. And I always just sort of felt like, oh, well, you know, that's, because you know, I hear old pros like, "Oh, make sure you buy a bike every year." Because when you retire, it'll be nice to have all those memories. Mm. But there, I've always sort of felt, well, as long as I have the memories, that's what counts. Um, <laughs> and I can't, you know, I love bikes, but I love racing bikes. That's the whole point. Um, but clothing, I sort of I like to keep just so I have a set from every year. Oh, nice! So we just moved into a house. I, the whole loft is almost already still is is about to be. F- filled up with all my old suitcases filled with old cycling clothing but i sort of i don't know i have like some idea that when my when my my daughter's older it'd be sort of cool she trumps up to some halloween party and full tink off <laughs> or tink bike it's like oh where'd you get that so, well that's my dad used to ride his bike back in the day <laughs> amazing plus you got you got a better gift because um, I, I remember you talking about in 2015 you got a nice watch from alberto for winning the giro right yeah, that's true. Better than a an old Scott addict from 2016 or 2017 is a, a nice watch. I got a beautiful watch from um, from Alberta, which was you know, that's I think that's one of the the nicest traditions in in cycling. You see that riders who you know, captains of teams when they when they win big races, I think it's it's an incredible. It's a nice gesture to pay back your your teammates by you know buying them something special and i've I re- i've received a watch from Alberto and a watch from from jacob fulsang as well after mm. the olympics but i've also received the other really special gifts from a uh, mass Peterson when he won the world championships it doesn't necessarily have to be a watch but i think that's pretty cool when when uh, when riders they make the extra effort when they yeah. when they won a big race to sort of pay back their um their, their teammates and sort of say thanks for your help here's something to remember the day so yeah that was that was pretty cool so who, who's got the uh, the biggest collection of kind of uh winners supporting supporting role winners gifts i think in my career the person i've, I've i think who, who had the most impressive sort of uh, palmares when it came came to helping big stars was uh, Matteo Sassato and when we rode together on tinkoff I think he could he could have almost won a new watch every day in the Grand Tour. <laughs> <laughs> he's like one of those um, salesmen. He's got uh, like ten Rolexes up his arm. But to me, it was just so cool. Like it just showed that the man didn't have many wins to his name. He did have a, a tour stage to his name and big big performances. But it just showed how many important teams he'd been a part of, helping mm. so many big names win big races. You know, that's that 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 was that was pretty cool. He's like. The way when he could tell stories about all the people he'd he'd held throughout his career, and it more or less lasted until the day he retired, really, because it was he was there until Alberto retired um, and mm. helped Peter Sagan, you know, in his last years of his career. So that's, you know that was, that was that was pretty cool. And we, uh, so that's I mean, obviously, back in um, 
you know, the 60s, 70s, probably through to the 80s, it was obviously very common for riders to supplement a lot of their pay with with winning um, prize pots and that being shared out amongst the team. Does that still happen now? And is it valuable to riders still? Well, prize money is always valuable, but um, it's it's not, well, it depends, I suppose, what depends on what team you ride for, what sort of a year you've had, what, uh, mm. uh, say more specifically, I think, if, if you're on a, if you if you have a season where you're part of many winning races or whatever, then it's it's a nice little bonus to get during the season. But now it's you know it's it's done so professionally and digitally with with prize money and race organization and and the way we receive that. So that it's just it's an, it's just so sometimes it sort of comes as a nice reminder that oh yeah I was part of that race. But it doesn't really it's not I, I can't really speak on everyone's behalf. But I, I don't I don't imagine that it's sort of it it plays a, a big significant role for each you know, for many riders. Um, but again, I think you should ask, if you ask a rider who's been on big Tour de France wins throughout many years, maybe a different story. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, I mean, cycling, I think uh, uh, most riders do it, you know, they get a salary and then they do it, they race. And then if you win, get some prize money, it's, it's an extra bonus. Yeah. And how about money actually kind of physically changing hands in racing? Because I remember, I can't, I, his name will come to me, but um, I met a Colombian, ex-Colombian pro, uh, who rode in the 90s uh, at Bank at some point. And he was, and we were in Colombia and he said, the house you're looking at, the house we're sitting in, I basically bought because uh, I helped um, another rider from another team uh, nursing through the mountains on a particular stage and he won the Giro. But he said to me, if you do this for me, I'll give you $25,000, which obviously you know, goes a long, long way in Colombia. Um, does that kind of thing ever still happen? Bartering for, bartering for help? Not that I'm aware of. No one's ever asked asked me for help in that way, and I don't think. And I think if if I was asked, then I'd I'd, I'd you know I'd politely say thanks, but no thanks, because in this day and age, you know, you can't really get away with doing things like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I, I I can imagine that that's why it doesn't really exist anymore. No, that would that would totally make sense. That would totally make sense. But do you, do you are there are there kind of. Uh, inter-team allegiances that exist beyond, say, compatriots um, or beyond DSs who used to be friends? Are there kind of, you know, if you race for a certain team, you you kind of, you're going to help out another team on a regular basis where you can, there is those back-scratching relationships? No. Um, you know, race every race is different and there's, you know, sometimes situations arises where, you know, you have to create some alliances, but... Uh, that, that all depends on the race, the race situation, and what, most importantly, what we as a team actually want to achieve. Mm. And there it's sort of, it makes sense if you, if you try to ride with someone rather than against everyone. But uh, that that is, that's something that really sort of happens spontaneously, really, and depending on the situation of the race. But I think uh, something Matthew White always tells us is, uh, I think, it's pretty valuable and a useful piece of it is just concentrating yourselves, you know, stick to our plan and not really care about any other team's plan because all of a sudden it can get pretty confusing and complicated as to what you actually want to achieve. Um, so we, we, we tend to just sort of focus on what our goal is and then try to execute that as best as possible from, you know, what we've been told and what, how we feel and how the race develops. Um, that's, that's usually how we go about things sort of, stick to our plan and then let everyone else talk about our plan or whatever or ask questions but that doesn't really have to you know bother any of us 
Chris, I want to move on to what happened. As you've mentioned it briefly, New Year's, that now you've got uh, a small child. It's not as fun as it used to be. But I want you to imagine that you're going to be hosting a, a New Year's Eve party this year. Um, and you've got to bring four members of the current Peloton to that party to make it fun. Who Who's getting the invite? Who's getting the call up to Chris's party? Well, I'd probably just invite all my teammates because... You know, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine any more, you know, funner, uh, more jovial types to to spend New Year's with. Is there is there no one in the peloton that's a bit of a mystery to you that you're like, oh, I could really unpack over a, a New Year's Eve party. They could be a real card. I, I like the British Sky Boys or Ineos Boys. They're, they all seem pretty cool. Um, someone I, I get along with quite well. Um, definitely. Um I don't know if I'll be able to persuade them to spend Christmas in, in cold Copenhagen, but <laughs> I, I, to be honest, it would, it would be nice to to invite some of my, 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 my Aussie Kiwi teammates and all the other national places they come from, my team, to, to Copenhagen for New Year's. That would be, I think that would, and again, I mean, it's not, people think, oh God, he's so politically correct. He's he only talking about his own team all the time. But <laughs> to be honest, it, it's it's a good example as to why I love writing for this team because we're all mates. Um mm. And it's 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 so much fun when I when I go away, um, spend time with them, talk a lot. We talk. We don't only talk about cycling. We talk about more or less everything else as well. Um, but then when I come home, I sort of just switch off, and you know, I, I pretty much stick to myself quite a lot. Um, busy enough as it is as well. You know, back and forth, play school, training, family, just chilling out, doing all the things you can't do when you're on the road. But it would be. Would be cool to have some teammates over for New Year's Eve. I think they'd enjoy that as well, Copenhagen. And would you? Would the playlist be exclusively Spice Girls that we know you're a massive fan of? And I need to <laughs> watch what I say next time. That backstage, I remember I said a good few years ago with Dan Jones. He, yeah, it's sort, of, it's sort of stock. It's not a lie. I, I was a Spice Girls fan back in my my early days in Ireland, but uh, I I think it'll be a little bit different come twenty twenty one. The obvious follow up question there is: Who's your favourite? As well, which your, who's your favorite Spice Girl? <laughs> so I thought you were going to ask, what's my favorite band? Oh, my favorite, <laughs> who's my favorite Spice Girl? Oh, uh, well, I suppose Ginger Spice is pretty one of my favorites. I haven't really, I haven't really followed up as to what they're doing these days, but uh, mine, uh, mine was uh, Mel B. Um, my parents, I was so obsessed with Mel B as a kid, my parents signed me up to her um, fan club. It weren't, it weren't a letter that she'd written herself, but we got a letter from Mel, signed from Mel B saying, very thank you very much. So, thank, thank you very much for your, for, for the cash, yeah. Mr. and Mrs. Yeah, Robinson, yeah. on behalf of your son, Joe. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it does, it did kind of work for you. Before we came on, Joe pointed out that you got given um, uh, a bunch of Walker's Crisps from fans, having said that you like Walker's Crisps. Um, a little bit like the Beatles getting pelted with jelly babies when they said they like jelly babies in an interview. Have you ever thought about just dropping those things in, see how far you can get, see how many drinks you can get bought if you mention a certain brand or maybe talking about a car, that that might come your way? <laughs> well, I, I have been fortunate enough to, I'm driving around in Mazda, which I, in fairness, I, I, I do pay for it, but it's, it's a nice car to drive around in. But uh, no, no, to be honest, you know, again, I, I get so many gifts anyway from our sponsors and team that, mm. uh, you know, I, I've, I don't really, I don't go out of my way uh, on social media or, or just sort of day-to-day life to, to try to get good deals. Maybe it's because I've tried back, you know, a couple of times and they just sort of denied me so bad, so much that it's been so embarrassing. And I was like, 
I'm not going to do that again. That was that was humiliating. <laughs> have you ever turned down a really strange, or have you ever been asked to be sponsored by someone where you just had to turn them down because they're like, that's not quite, <laughs> you know, I don't want to align myself with that brand. Uh, maybe, but not now. I'll share it here. But <laughs> I think more more often than not, I, I've tried to sort of imply is maybe there's a pro bike disc, pro bike rider discount uh, in the horizon that there's just been nothing. So I was like, oh, forget about it. <laughs> you start tweeting and instagramming about sort of like dry wall lining a lot because you need your walls like, like my wife's just standing there going oh you did not just say that <laughs> but do you find on a more serious note though that there is a difficulty for talent to kind of win over against popularity and teams will take on riders who are, who stand to do well on social media and stand to therefore do well in terms of the presence that their sponsors require versus a rider that's just purely talented you know what i think uh, maybe sort of in, for, to, to get the first contract yeah that could have an influence i'm not i, I don't really i don't follow I, the only p- people i follow on instagram is actually it's my own team because they're so mm. interesting and such a good team that i don't need to follow anyone else. but uh, <laughs> but i don't really you know i i, I don't know if, if, if it actually plays a role down in the you know when you go from amateur pro but to be honest let's say it did it wouldn't take very long for riders teammates sponsors whatever to figure out that okay he, he can talk the talk but he certainly can't walk the walk you know what i mean and at yeah. the end of the day that's that's the beauty of cycling that you can you can say so much and do so much but at the end of the day it's all about pushing the pedals and getting you know getting to the finish line faster than the guy beside you and um if you if you don't do that well then all the all all the talk around that is sort of it's not really valuable. But if you can do both, then yeah, definitely it's it's a good combination in this the, the day and age we live in. Mm. Um, some may may claim that I could be a little bit better at it, but my argument is that I also you know I, I spend so much time trying to be good at the the walking bit that uh, you know I want to master that first and. When push comes to shove, then you know that's what's important. When you line up to the Tour de France or one of the biggest one-day stage race of the year, any any race really, mm. and you get dropped, you don't want to sit there going, "Oh shit, I spent too much time checking social media and figuring out what I should post instead of training." And that's why I'm sort of stuck here in the Gruppetto. You know that that's that's a bit of a it's a bit of a horrible feeling to have. You know, if you, you you want to make sure that you do everything you can to be as good as you can on the bike. Um, which is, you know, sometimes I, 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 I stop. I do wonder a little bit when there's a lot of, you know, people, people do like to tell us how far they've gone, where they're going, the big adventure. It's, you know, out and find yourself. And it's an adventure and this and that. It's like, well, it was, it was such an adventure. Turn your phone off and go out and experience <laughs> it rather than spending, you know, a day taking pictures, riding around, telling them what you're doing. Yeah. And it's the same when it comes to racing, it's, you know, you want to see the racer racing that's what we're here for that's you know if you don't like it go home um, mm. but it's, it's it's the racing we tune in to watch and all the pop around sort of it boosts the attention and it's 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 good for cycling definitely but uh you want to see the elbows out and you want to see riders you know hammering into the first pave section or you know getting dropped in Maltuez and you know you want they're, they're the images everyone longs for um mm. and that's you know that's, Sort of as a bike rider, that's my that's my most important uh, job, uh, and what I enjoy the most, to be honest, it's what that's what makes sense to me. Yeah, but but, the, but weirdly, what occurs to me is of all the sports, though, um, 
Cycling really does lend itself so well to carrying a mobile phone around with you and using it when you're doing it. And why we don't see, do you ever, have you ever seen anyone, any uh, new to the game Neo Pro, um, very unadvisedly take out a mobile phone and try and take a snap of them mid-race? Because you have a pocket, you can carry it with you, and you can just about get away with kind of easing up a little bit, being on somebody's wheel and sitting up and taking. That, that, that's, that seems to me like a very real possibility. How do you stop that happening? Well, just you know, ride harder. I mean, that's, again, I think uh, so, sport and cycling in general, it, things you know, you can you can complicate things, or you can sort of make make it, you know, add a lot of things onto it, gadgets and social media and f- phones and whatnot. But at the end of the day, sports about winning, and when when you when you get stuck into it and you you're really focused and trying to perform and hang on, you know, then everything else sort of goes out the window. And then, uh, you know, people aren't concentrating about, like, you know, grabbing their phone, taking selfies because they're concentrating about hanging up, you know, holding the wheel or staying out in the wind or taking their turn. It's sort of what I'm trying to say is that that's what that's what I like about cycling. It's it's still what it always used to be, you know, two legs, set of lungs, you know, a bike that has Mm -hmm. to go fast on the bike beside you. Then people might be like, oh, well, that sounds a bit too competitive. Well, it is a competitive sport. And that's the best people at it are the best people at winning at it. But it doesn't mean that everyone else, including myself, that wins very little, doesn't enjoy doing it. Um, it's it's also, you know, if you're able to master, you know, accepting defeat or, you know, realizing that there are people out there better than oneself, doesn't mean that you just go, oh, fuck, I'm going to give up. You know, I'm not arsed to do that because there's so many people better than me. I'm not. You just, you just sort of plug away at it and uh, you still get addicted to it and enjoy it. And those who don't, they, they typically sort of come up with excuses that pro cycling is a bit too rough, a bit too hard, a bit too tough. Um, and it is, it is tough, but it also, it's a great place to be also for the young riders now. I mean, there's a lot of attention towards young talents and development and where I am on Team Bike Change, good communication, you know, no one's really left behind. But mm. there is still this understanding that it's a rough, it's a hard sport to be a part of in ter- terms of performance. And then, and there, I, you know, again, it's, it goes back to all this, you know, social media and whatever. Not that I'm, I'm, I'm against it by no means, but it is sort of, sort of. That's not the most important part. The most important part is winning, um, and not necessarily just taking part. Although taking part is pretty cool, but you need to be pretty good to get up to this level to be able to take part. I've always wondered, Chris, for someone like yourself. I've seen you in like grand tour stages or monuments, absolute like two, three hours on the front going hell for leather. And then you pull off and you've got like 60, 70, 80 K to go, especially in like a grand tour where you can't just step off. What's, um, do you, do you allow your mind to switch off between pulling off and to the finish? Or are you still in like race mode, even though your job's done for the day and you're, you're kind of, your, your, your expectations changed a bit, which is conserve energy get to the get to the finish in as slow a time as possible so you're fresh to do it next day are you are you still in race mode though head in your head mode yeah i mean it all depends on sort of what day i've had you know there's there can be those stages where you know i don't see the front i get dropped i'm sitting in the repetitive just trying to hang on there i'm not really i'm not enjoying myself and it's just sort of it's more of a mental challenge or just as big a mental t- challenge to sort of just make sure to get through you know oh there's mm. 60k like one two this year in the tour was a dreadful day for me. I, I got spat first time up on two and I was just, you know, suffering all day. And just, oh, 
there was sort of hard to, to take a breather and just go, wow, this is cool. Man, mm. Mon Vong 2 twice, iconic, people mm. everywhere, cheering, roaring. I just, oh, get me to the bus, get me home, let me recover to the next day. Those days are pretty, they're hard, but they're also quite, it's quite satisfying. Then when you make it through and you're like, yeah, you know, cyclists were, were quite good at uh, forgetting the bad days quite quickly, or I am. You know, it's like, oh, that was a shit day. Move on. Tomorrow can be the best day I've ever had the bike. You know, mm. the body is it's, it's, it's an incredible machine that they can bounce back, you know, so quickly that sometimes you just can't explain why you've had a bad day. And then, but then there's, there's also stages in the tour, you know, I was, I was, you know, storming, like in the brakes, helping on the front, doing my job, you know, and then gets, get dropped because I just couldn't hang, hang on anymore. I'd done, mm. what, done what I needed to do and there's just no more energy left in the tank. And there, you know, especially those days where I was in the break doing work for some teammates, it's, it's, it's just, it's the greatest feeling in the world. I've done everything I could. I've been on, on great form, great legs, been everywhere, been here, there on the front. And then, you know, job done, big thumbs up from the sports director when you sail through. And then it's, you know, miles ahead of the time limit and ahead of the Gruppetto. Mm. And there it's just, it's, you know, it doesn't get better when you're just like cruising through the mountains, Alps, Pyrenees, wherever you are on your own and just being sort of being drafted along by, by all the fans. Uh, <laughs> there it really always dawns, like dawns on me that, oh, this is so cool. Even 10 years as a pro, it's like, well, I'm not in beats this, you know, that's, that's one yeah. of the highlights of, of doing what I do. You know, when you really do your job well, um, and you, every, all boxes are ticked and you sort of, you even go beyond that and do even better than anyone else expected. And then you get dropped and then you're like, oh, I'm just going to enjoy these last 20 K. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had a lot of days like that. And that's, you know, it doesn't get better. That's, that's what pro bike running is all about. It's reminding yourself that you're actually a pro. And, and you, so well attuned to your body that you kind of and and also your brain right um that you know when those days are going to come and i know we're talking about something slightly different in terms of um kind of having those options that that time sometimes to kind of sit up and smell the roses a little bit but i'm thinking more about days where everything's just in harmony and you've got form and you just know that you're going to have a really good day on the bike um is that the case you kind of generally know? And more to the point, have when was the last time you were surprised by form you didn't know you had or a lack of form when you thought that you were really prepared? Um, the, the latter one was the, definitely the Olympics because there I had a great tour. I was flying, I had a good Giro going really well. Um, and then I was actually feeling pretty good there in Japan. And then I just, the shit just hit the fan of Manfuji and I, I, I blew completely. That was that was a bit of a bummer. I was like, oh, I, I could feel the days before that everything was sort of had sort of clicked into place, and I was still I still had the form that I, I had a week previously in, in the tour. Mm. Um, and the the first example, I I, I don't know, I, I can't remember exact, remember a specific day where I was like expecting a bad day and had a real good day, but I would say so much as. And again, that, that is one of the sort of the beauty of cycling is the unpredictability of it. You can train, mm. prepare, and everything you can do, you know, exactly as you plan. Training can go exactly as you want to, your legs, your form, and everything, but you just still don't know how you're going to react in the race. Or I don't, certainly. Certainly, I don't. Some riders do, I'm sure. Mm. Um, they're probably the riders that win more races than I do. But um, me, you know, form can come and go when I least expect it. 
but that also makes it just that you know bit more exciting sometimes like oh you never know like and it means that when you've had a bad day you don't go oh sometimes you of course you could feel okay i'm i'm tired now and this this is mm-hmm. not going to come you know t- i'm not going to be able to turn this one around but typically i i you know in a grand tour i can have my worst days in the first week and then my best days in last week like it makes no sense but that's just the type of rider that i am i like to ride into races you know i ride better if i'm you know not being super fresh, uh, but have some day, days in my legs. Um, and that's just, you know, that's, uh, uh, that's one thing I really like about cycling is that uh, it's a, uh, it's, you, you never really know what you get. <laughs> um, and that, yeah, you sort of, it keeps you, it's always sort of guessing like, oh, it's been going well, but uh, oh, geez, I wonder how it's going to go now. Um, and just keeps me, to me, just keeps me always, my eye on like a little bit nervous, you know, the tension, like oh, have I done things well? Have I done enough? Whatever. And then you, you either you, it's it's confirmed when you when you go to the race, and it's like oh, sweet. Oh, you've spoken about before, I believe. Like at the end of a Grand Tour, you kind of you get to that point where un- unless you're like one of the top GC guys, you kind of like your heart rates are barely getting over one fifty. You, you're like you go from pushing like one ten cadence up mountains to sort of like seventy. 60 and you're all just like relying on this like weird form in your legs that has been built over two weeks and you're so tired yet you're still managing just to push out mad numbers and, and get through big old mountain stages in the Alps first of all I don't think I've ever pushed 110 cadence <laughs> <laughs> so I usually go from like 80 cadence to 55 <laughs> but uh you know it's just again the beauty of cycling you just I, you can only explain it to another pro bike rider and not not you should not for you guys to take that personally but it's just it's just such a mystery really sometimes like how that feels that bubble you know the grand mm. tour bubble where you disappear into this sort of fatigue zone and the, it's as if the body's just accepted okay this this is this is so fucked that we're just gonna it, the body just sort of stops fighting against it and just accepts what is and then you just you're absorbed into this sort of bubble of, of you know pure strength raw power but you're also so tired but you're pushing out the best numbers you've ever pushed out and you're like, wow, where did this come from? And it's, you know, you can put so much, you know, you can look into it with, you know, scientific glasses on, but at the end of the day, it's just like bodies, the human cyclist body is just such a beautiful thing that it can react in so many different ways and, you know, surprise oneself so many times. Like, wow, now I'm sat here with the 20 best climbers in the world. And three days ago, I was getting dropped on the 2K climbs. Like, well, it just shows how the body changes throughout the course of the three week period. And then you hear a lot, you know, also you hear and see a lot of riders that do their first grand tours. Like they can really, it's as if they unlock, unlock some sort of a code and then they just, they just have an an extra gear, you know, and I I felt myself and that's just, it's just such an amazing thing. Um, Really, really, really. uh, Yeah. The beauty of cycling really. That sounds, that sounds like a really, kind of deep very specific state to get to which most people you know most people wouldn't and perhaps most people in other sports wouldn't either um how do you kind of decompress from that afterwards because we recently spoke um to peter kennock about his racing career and he highlighted that you know every year he'd come through to a certain point in the year and he'd feel really quite kind of almost deflated even though everything would be pointing to that not being the case and didn't necessarily have an answer as to why 
other than you know the highs are very high and therefore the lows can be quite low and how do you kind of transition i guess between those two points i think to me i i myself get a lot of you know benefit or enjoyment out of sort of going straight from uh, finishing let's say take this year as an example finishing Giro. if i fly home next day and i pick up my my, my daughter at play school you know mm-hmm. less than 24 hours after i just finished three weeks stage race you know and you know she's just happy i'm home and then it's mm-hmm. question getting home doing some shopping cleaning making you know dinner bedtime everything else that's involved with just sort of day-to-day life and i you know i really to me that sort of helps switch off um you know go from being a bike rider to being a dad and a husband and then you know a couple of days later you're like oh wait whoa i just finished Giro sunday and it's wednesday mm. and then uh in, then you start you know thinking things over and you start preparing for the next race but it's yeah it's as if yeah it's it's it is again it's, it's really hard to explain because every rider is different uh, some riders they need a week where they just sit in the couch to stare out into space where i sort of i just go straight into something else but still know that I have to sort of look after my body. I do a lot of running after Grand Tour mm. and then uh, sort of look forward to that sort of bonus of three weeks of hard work. Then it's like, oh, what's going to come of this? You know, what's going to come of this form? Um, and then go to the next race, sort of looking forward to that post-Grand Tour form. This year was also a bit of an exception because I did the Giro and the Tour mm. and no racing in between. So I was sort of like, oh, cool, the Giro, I just finished it, felt good, went well throughout the whole Giro, came out of it well. I'm just looking forward to a break coming home and then I, I more or less ran every day for 10 days didn't touch the bike because mm. i knew i could just feel the system was just ticking over mm. if i rode the bike i'd be doing too much if i didn't do anything i wouldn't be doing enough and then i got on the bike and i was like boom okay it's there and I, I was ready for the tour and then i went straight to the tour and you know that that went well throughout the whole period and it was just like oh sweet and then uh yeah after the olympics i was i was i was tired and there luckily i i Let's say I, I knew I was tired, so I was looking forward to the break. Whereas if if things sort of if you're surprised by bad form when you're hoping you'll be in good form, there it can be hard to adjust. It's like oh, this wasn't the plan. But again, as ten years pro, I think you start to understand that you only have a plan until you know to a certain point. Yeah. Plans they change all the time. Certainly in cycling as well, you can never you always have to be sort of prepared for expect the worst, hope for the best kind of thing. Um, that's sort of my how I approach things, and if I lo- as long as I do my homework properly, I don't do anything crazy, but work hard, then uh, you know the, the, the at some point the formal will arrive, and that so far has, has sort of been the case. And to wrap up in a way, apart from obviously now you've got a kid, and that as you said is like your big release is like finishing a race, flight, get into Copenhagen. And you forget about everything because in that moment you're sort of you're picking the kid up from school, you're making dinner, etc. Is your other big release then when you get to play the drums in the broom wagons? Because and 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 more importantly, are the broom wagons still still going? I have to admit that it, it's been a good, it's been a long time since I've been playing playing music with with, with the broom wagons. Um, but we did uh, we did actually play a concert at a wedding uh, a mutual friend of ours a couple of weeks ago, which was. You know, it sort of uh, reignited the flame, which was pretty yeah. cool. Um, yeah. So maybe, maybe when uh, when there's more time, that uh, then we will sort of reunite and uh, <laughs> you know find our own place. We we actually we had a place we played here in Copenhagen, but that sort of we don't have anywhere we really play anymore. And you know, we're all busy doing 
being here, there, and everywhere, then when we get home, we're, we're all sort of home. But I think in the future, it, the broom wagons, they still ex- exist in full effect, believe me. Okay. But uh, <laughs> no, no new records out any, any time soon. So there we have it, James, Chris Yule, Chris Christmas Jensen. Uh, what, a, what a lovely name. Uh, great guy. Very affable chap. And you should, you just sent me in between, you sent me his WhatsApp video, uh, a WhatsApp video rather, of uh, the Broom Wagons playing. So give them a Google. They're pretty good. Yeah, I'll embed that. I'll put that underneath this episode in the description so you can watch because obviously they're um, Matty Breschel, who is a former pro himself, he used to ride for sort of EF. Um, I think he was at Tinkoff as well with Chris Jensen, is their lead guitarist and singer as well. Um, and then Andreas Lund, I believe, who's like the date one of the Swanyers or one of the team coaches for the Danish national teams on base. I feel I feel like it's got a place with Brian Holm. I feel like he'd be a real he'd be either a great hype man or just a great he, he, great front man. It's it's only further proof that the for me the coolest nationality on earth is Danish. But I've got to say, I wasn't exactly. Uh, Endeared to the proposition of caramel potatoes. No, I thought you might have been all over that. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's. I feel like maybe it was like lacking some kind of description. I'm sure there's some element to it, which is great. And obviously, you know, you typically do duck with something like a quite sweet, like cherry or orange sauce or something like that. So, you know, there is um, there's a connection there between the sweetness. It just sounded. I, I was just picturing sort of caramel poured over roast potatoes, and just thinking like, oh, quite, that's one thing that. You know, Britain does not do very good food. Let's be honest. We've invited lots of good people to do some amazing food for us, and we benefit from that. But we do do a pretty spot-on roast. And I'd say on the Christmas table, I normally find the offerings pretty, you know, they're, they're pretty special, and I do love Britain for that. Um, and we asked Chris what was on his table, but what's going to be on yours, Mr. Robinson? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you with something that might shock you, um, in that I don't like roast dinners. That's, I think they're grossly overrated that's to the point where... That's ridiculous. Listen, James, listen, listen. I think roast dinners are grossly overrated um, and all of the best components of the Christmas lunch are things that you don't normally find on your average Sunday roast. So for me, the best parts of Christmas lunch are pigs in blankets, number one, yes, undefeated. Yes. The undefeated phenom of Christmas... Is, is is the pork times pork snack that is bacon around a chipolata. Or as we call them, devils on horsebacks. No, that's bacon around a scallop. And you want to know it? why I know that? Because I had a pub quiz the other week and I got that question wrong. Wow. Okay. So you did you say that was because it was the chipolata wrapped in a pork blanket? No, because I knew that it was a pig in blanket. So I just guessed at something. I think I put bacon wrapped around a potato. <laughs> but... Which, no one's complaining. Uh, side note, sausages are better than bacon. That's also fact. Um, yeah, I don't know. Sec- second to the pig in blanket for me on the dinner on, on that plate at Christmas is, and this is going to again get you, I will smash three or four pickled onions with my Christmas lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and then third... Do you have a jar by your, just a, a, Percy, a Percy jar just by Joe? Oh, mate, no, so me and a uh, keen listener of the show, Paul Robinson, my father, um, we're huge into our pickled goods. So there will be two 
big proper family value pack size jars, one with pickled onions, one with gherkins on the Christmas table. Uh, my dad's even known, I've even seen my dad put piccalilli on his Christmas dinner. I can get down with that. Piccalilli, how good is that though? Luminous, scary. Yeah, yeah, tasty. yeah, exactly. Um, and then, number, but number third, so it goes pig in blanket for me, then my pickled goods, then sage and onion stuffing. So, well. Genuinely, I could leave the turkey, could leave it. Could leave, I don't mind a roast potato. I'm okay with them, but they don't, they're not my favourite potato. They're not even in my top three potatoes. And uh, the veg is all right if you sort of roast it, but my parents are of a British generation and British where they just boil their veg to shit. <laughs> so it tastes like nothing. <laughs> you know, there's yeah, no if like, you boil veg long enough, it becomes soup, and that's how they that's, like it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's how everyone in the UK above the age of 45 likes vegetables. <laughs> I think it's because no one, no one in the UK had teeth up until about 1910. Exactly. So there's no like honey roasted parsnips or, you know, Brussels sprouts with sort of war- chestnuts and pancetta. It's Everything's been put in the same water to be boiled for more than 10 minutes. Yeah, no, okay, I'm with you. And I'd like to sort of caveat my loving of the British disposition to do a good roast with... It's the concept of the roast that I like, right? Which is basically meat and two veg. And yeah, I am kind of envisaging something a little bit more pimp than your average, there's an overdone turkey. Meat and some, potatoes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I want my sprouts to be sautéed with a little bit of pancetta and some roasted almonds because I'm a massive ponce. Um, yeah, of course. I, but yeah. you're not getting that on a Christmas dinner. You're not getting that on a Christmas dinner plate. I'll tell you what, tell you what, when I make it, I am. And the last Christmas... Actually, it wasn't last Christmas because we weren't allowed to have a Christmas last time. But when last time we were allowed to have a Christmas, do you remember that's probably 2019, maybe? yeah, something like yeah. that. Did a re- did a very decadent carrot. It was uh, carrots poached in butter. Get out of here! So it's full, whole carrots. There's a Tom Kerridge recipe, and we all know how uh, he's a large lad. He used to be. He's given up his ale, so he's lost quite a lot of weight. Yeah, Tom yeah. Kerridge recipe. So you take uh, um, enough water to cover your carrots, peeled but whole. Two blocks of butter, depending on how many carrots you got in there, and star and star anise, which is a um, aniseedy kind of flavour, and you poach them. Star anise, that she was a um, wasn't that a band in the nineties? Yeah, she toured with Skunk and Nancy, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, and it, they, I mean, so it sounds. I'll be honest with you, mate. It sounds delicious, but I'm I'm going back to my parents this Christmas if COVID, if Omicron. Or off off Macon, the new off Ofcom. I think it's Ofcom. Ofcom the isn't new it? transformer-based variant of COVID allows us to. Um, and I know, for example, that my parents will have peas with their Christmas dinner and their marafat peas. What the fuck is a marafat pea? Why is what's a marafat pea? Is a broad bean, mate. I it? don't know, but it's different to a garden pea or a frozen pea. But they really like marafat peas. Marafat peas still come in the same brown tin, the same design that I'm pretty sure I was there during rationing. Isn't Marafat Peas like a tennis player from the Soviet Russia in the 70s? <laughs> yeah, probably. Marafat Peas, yeah. Um, and Marafat Peas are disgusting. Uh, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Bread sauce, you could dig that? Nah, parents don't go for bread sauce. Uh, my mum my mum will go apple sauce, as will my sister. Uh, I go, here we go, I go mint sauce, but here's a little top tip for the listener. If you want to make your mint sauce a bit better, you decant it into a mug and then pour more vinegar in, a bit more sarsens, whisk it up. It goes a bit of a looser contest- consistency, but you get that bit more of that acidic tartness from more vinegar. 
again, that sort of seems to circle back to your love of the pickled good. Uh, clear, as you can see, I just I bloody love vinegar. Well, my top tip is horseradish with every roast. Horseradish yeah. is such an undersung a condiment. It's so Big good. Horseradish. But we won't have yesterday. beef. We, we won't have beef. Like, no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's, one, that's one thing I don't like. I hate the tradition of, oh, you can't have this because you're not having that meat. So I want horseradish when I'm having chicken. Thank you very much. I quite like having a Yorkshire pudding with everything. Not just if we're having, what's Yorkshire exactly. pudding typically? Beef as well. Beef in it, yeah. Like, I want a Yorkie on every single plate of roast dinner. That's why I'm like with mint sauce. I'll go mint sauce on chicken. I'll go mint sauce on, you know, sun fried chicken, on turkey, on lamb, which it traditionally goes with, or even a it beef burger. Really, yeah. if, oh, mince, not sure about mint sauce beef burger. Mint sauce is delightful. Best thing on a Christmas uh, sort of table. It's definitely not on most people's Christmas tables, but I will give you that. I'll give you that. And you're kind of making me hungry, so I might go and pop down the carvery after this. Yeah, down the Toby. Yeah, when's the last time you went to a Toby? Last time I went to, I've never been to a Toby carvery in my life. What? I mean, I say, I say, I haven't, uh, you know, I don't, I don't judge anyone who does. I don't judge anyone who doesn't. I've been once or twice. It's an experience. It's an experience. But this is this stems back from my I don't the fact the, the fact I don't like roast dinners. So I'm gonna go somewhere that specialises in roast meat. Okay, fair enough. Why why would I do that? Like the other day, there's another one for you. Uh, a couple of Sundays ago, uh my myself, my, my good partner Jade and uh four of our friends went out for Sunday lunch at a pub in Ainsford. You might know it, the malt shovel. I do know the malt shovel. Yeah, yeah. nice, nice like does good food in there. They all got yeah, roast fish and dinners. Chips, didn't you? No, I had steak and alpine, mate. It was delicious. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's one thing that is missing. And well, another great British, another great British invention is the steak and alpine. I'm sure someone else invented the pie before. It's been you know, it's a staple. Uh, and I think actually that's a very good shout. It's a great alternative to a roast. It's kind of like a pocket roast. You can take that away. It's got all the elements of a lid. roast. It's got a lid. Was it a proper pie? It was a proper, proper short cross pie. Proper short cross no. pie, yeah. I hate it when you get a pie and it's got just a puff pastry lid in in a ramekin. You're like, proper. that is not a pie. It was like a slice of a pie, so I had the top, a bit of the side, and the bottom, and it obviously oh. been taken out of like a pie dish. Very it, was nice. deli- it was really nice. Um, would recommend if anyone's in the area going down the malt shovel. I've still never been. Pie. I'd ride past I would, it. A lot I'd go, mate. Me. I'd go. Um, to be honest, for Christmas this year for lunch. I know that you want to roast dinner with horseradish. I'd prefer to go down the Portuguese route, which is something called bacalao, which is which like is salt um, cod, salt cod with a, like a creamy, almost parsley sauce. Oh, delightful! I was gonna, I was thinking that's what Chris, uh, Chris Christopher Christmas time Yule log was gonna say was something fish based because uh, I've got a friend, and okay, I know I appreciate this is like saying that people from Scotland are the same as people from Wales. But I've got a mate who's uh, one half of the family is um, Norwegian and they go big, big on the fish. And I thought that was a relatively widespread Scandinavian thing as a big um, a pi- like a pickled roast. herring. A pi- yeah, just a, one tiny pickled herring <laughs> between a family of nine. Yeah. We'd all eat it with toothpicks just to make it last. Surprised they don't go any Danish bacon. There's no, I mean, that's what I thought that there might be a bit of on the plate, a bit of Danish bacon. Whether that's wrapped in a wrapped around a sausage, I don't know. Breaking news: the Danes have never eaten bacon nor drunk Carlsberg. No, it all gets exported. Yeah, but the Danish actor. It's like Colombians don't do cocaine. They don't. <laughs> but that 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 all comes falling down because uh, what do we export? Lots of um, food wise. 
Uh, we export lots of um, grain that's very intensively grown and sell it to Vietnam to feed cows and then buy the cows back off them. There you go. We also, we're the prime producer, where I live is the prime producer of spring onions. That's right. Um, Northwest Kent, I eat a lot of spring onions. So. I don't know what to say to that because... Of all of the of all of the veg, I mean, I'm not saying I'm sort of least inspired by spring onion. It's not my it's my third. It's third in my it's third in the rank of onions. But maybe that's indicative of how much onion I eat. What's your top onion? Shallot. Oh, the white onion, mate. The, the white, white onion. onion's number one. The, the classic white onion. I could eat the I eat the classic white onion. Like I'll chop it up and like before it goes in the bolognese or in the chit or in like the the dish. I'm 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 munching away on that onion. I love. Clearly love acid. Yeah. Acidic flavours. I'm glad I'm not your, your good lady <laughs> on the eaves of when Joe's <laughs> cooking a bolognese, come in the kitchen, get a little peck on the cheek. Whoa, what's that? What's that, Joe? <laughs> Been eating that raw onion. Exactly. So Well, okay, um, fair enough. I like a banana shallot. I like a red onion. See, there you go again, banana shallots. Banana shallots, because that's shallot. Like your, like your poached carrots. Yeah, 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 I know. You just got... <laughs> no, but also... Um... Can tell he lives in East London. Jeez. <laughs> what, poached carrot? Yeah, he lives, yeah. Down, he lives down the road. His real name's Barney. Changed <laughs> yeah. it. Didn't like Barney. Got bullied. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, we're going off on a bit of a tangent now. We should probably... Yeah. Really into NFTs. <laughs> what non-fungible <laughs> tokens. <laughs> that came out of left field. <laughs> it feels like so they would be into non, yeah non fungible tangents. Lastly, weirdest 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 Christmas gift. Um, I don't get that many gifts. I know it sounds bad, but um, like as if I'm like atting people. But I it's not saying I got, but Jade once got from her from a family member. It was a woolly hat that became a scarf and at the end had pockets. Wow. Yeah. The spork, the spork of head accessories. The spork, the spork of winter, winter <laughs> accessories. Yeah. I don't think it ever came out of the packaging. Dear, oh dear. Yourself? A cucumber. You got a cucumber? I know the fact. I bet you ate that cucumber. Yeah, I did. So, I weren't a waste. It wasn't a waste. It didn't say what's the most wasteful gift you've been given. <laughs> um, but on that note, James, uh, Lindsay, uh, thank you as ever for putting together this episode. Probably going to have more to cut from this than usual because we've been chatting absolute tripe for the last 10 minutes about what porks should be paired with which condiments. But also, just a last little bit on that, right? <laughs> Isn't it such a macabre concept that you would call... I mean, if I was, if I was a pig... And I was going to scare my children into not doing stuff with the bedtime stories I read them. I talked to them about pigs in blankets. Like, imagine imagine your father drawing up a sheet of your mother over the top of her. That, that's the concept. Is like, you're the meat and you're putting more of your fellow meat on top of you. Right. Imagine you going to bed wearing your mate's skin. It's a kind of similar thing. You know what's, and you know what's yet weirder than that? Yeah. The fact that when you eat a pork scratching or crackling, it sometimes yeah. still has hair on it. On that note. On that note. Merry Christmas, uh, one and every, all. Everyone have a lovely Christmas and New Year. We're going to be back in the New Year. This is the last episode of 2021. We'll be back early in the year with our first episode, Roman Bardet. What a way to start 2022. Start, start it right. Um, but until such time, James... Thank you very much for being a lovely co-host. I hope you enjoy 
plenty of uh, pork squared on Christmas Day and horseradish. Joe, Merry Christmas. I really hope we get to have Christmas this year. This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sportful, home of the Fiandra Collection. That's right. The Fiandra is a no-nonsense range that was developed on the cobbled bergs of Flanders, where the variable weather can be as challenging as the road you're riding on. Using valuable input from Sportful's pro riders, the likes of Peter Sagan and Paolo Bettany included, the Fiandra Collection mixes weatherproof technology with a performance fit for tough clothing that you can actually race in. With everything from warmers to jackets, bib tights to gilets, the Fiandra range will have you covered from head to toe, leaving you with no excuse not to ride. Prices starting from £45, the Fiandra range is available at all Sportful stockists. For more information on the Sportful Fiandra range, click the link in the episode description below.